All right. Well, welcome to this Rotavia. This is the green room. We're going to get ready. We're doing quick introductions with everybody here. Um, so I'm Ray Wong. Um, I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm going to introduce to you to Vala, and we're going to talk about talk to Aubrey, and then we're going to go to each one of our guests, and they're going to share a little bit what they're talking about today, and then we'll jump into the live production. So um, Vala, where are you at? Where you are today? How you doing? Uh, dialing in from Boston, and uh, this is episode 198. Crawford's actually going to be our 600th interview, so we're doing. We just want no so, pressure on you at all, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is how Ray and I spend our Fridays. Thank you for tuning in. That's awesome. And and Aubrey, this is her last show that she's producing. I want to thank her for the awesomeness. We'll talk more about that later uh, when we get to the show. So thank you, Aubrey. So where's home right now? Um, Roseville, California, in the Sacramento suburbs. It's not a hundred degrees today, I don't think. So I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> you hit three digits. And Francis, what are you talking about today and where's home? So. Oh, I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm talking about the new book I co-authored uh, on leadership. Awesome. All right. Awesome. And of course, Heather, welcome back. Your 16th appearance. We're going to have some fun with that. So where's home? And what are you talking about today? My sweet 16. Uh, I am here in northern New Jersey today, and I'm talking about whatever you guys ask me about. Electronic waste and, and all good things. All not Excellent. good things, actually. All not good things, yeah. And then Crawford. Hey, how are you guys? So uh, this is, I think this is my third lap around the track uh, on, the, uh, on the show. Uh, so I'm the president of IDC, International Data Corporation. We are uh, one of the largest tech research companies, uh, about 1,100 analysts worldwide in 52 countries. Um, and uh, looking forward to talking about what's going on in tech uh, right now and how our customers are dealing with this global pandemic, uh, both on the IT buyer side and on the uh, supplier side. Awesome. Well, hey, we're going to kick off soon and we're going to do a countdown. Aubrey, do the honors and we're going to go live. All right, here we go. Three, two, and one. Hello oh, and uh, welcome. Yeah, it is Friday. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on uh, Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, a must-read for everyone. Uh, he's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. Here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. If you haven't seen him, you haven't been on Twitter. He is the number one person to follow for CEOs, CMOs, and CIOs in almost every ranking. A author himself, a person that you'll find on business press and business media. And more importantly, he's a keynote speaker, highly sought after and hard to get. So make sure you reach out to him for that. Uh, but more importantly, you know, we've been co-hosting and he's a co-founder of the show with me. Uh, we've been co-hosting, co-founding the show for quite some time. And this is, we're getting to some special landmarks and milestones. And of course, with our special guest today, who do we have today? What's going on, Vala? Yeah, our special guest actually helped launch Disrupt TV. Today is our 600th interview, but our first guest was interview number two. So uh, talk about uh, one of the founding members of Disrupt TV and first ballot hall of fame. We have uh, Crawford Delfred, who's the president 
uh, of IDC. Profit was appointed president of IDC in February of last year. Prior to his current role, he served as IDC's chief operating officer. Throughout his leadership, IDC has established a leading position in the world's most prominent and trusted technology market intelligence provider. Crawford joined IDC in 1989 as a research analyst. Throughout his IDC career, he's grown multiple IDC businesses to industry leadership positions. Crawford is a leading authority in IT industry and has completed extensive research on the structure and evolution of information technology industry. He advises technology business leaders on how to adapt and change and it, well, now he's president, so his team advises, but he's still Crawford is frequently quoted in publications such as Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times. You see him on Bloomberg Technology Television. He's everywhere. You can follow him. He's a great follow on Twitter at Craw, C-R-A-W. By the way, it gives you a sense of an early adopter when you can get that handle. Yeah, Craw. you know, I had a band in Scotland offer me money for that, the, the Crawfords. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tried to get Vala. I couldn't do it. I was too late. Uh, so anyway, we want to thank him because when he helped launch Disrupt, he was a chief research officer. Prior appearance, he was a chief operating officer. And now he's president and still gracious enough to share his time with Ray and I. So welcome to Disrupt TV, Crawford. Thank you guys very, very much. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here. I am so thrilled for you guys, and I'm thrilled that this show has taken off the way that it has. It's just, just great news for you guys. Congratulations. Thank Thanks you, a lot. You know, we're really excited to have you here and have you back. You have some awesome insights and wisdom. Um, and, you know, more importantly than ever, that insight and wisdom is being used as we think about where we are um, in this COVID-19 situation. And when we think about this, there's the pre-pandemic, there's the pandemic and the post-pandemic phases that are here. When we think about where we were four months ago, it was just four months ago, if you can believe that, um, you know, different priorities were in place. So what's changed uh, and what's the sentiment among some of your clients and among the people that you are talking to. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, Ray, you know, the sentiment has, has definitely evolved. Um, so it, it is, it is really crazy. I mean, you know, four or five months ago, we were, we were kind of going into this thing and, and I, we get asked a lot about, you know, how will this likely evolve? And this, the sort of short answer is, I, I think these global pandemics, you know, none, none of us have really any experience, but this is the kind of thing that it starts with a bang and it kind of ends with a whimper. And, and we're seeing that all over the world. But we've seen clearly five stages emerge that have driven different kinds of customer behavior associated with um, surviving in the pandemic. And, and the first uh, was, was really about maintaining business continuity. And that was kind of in the crisis mode. And we think we're kind of at the end of that now where companies are, are sort of moving beyond the crisis mode. And unfortunately, they're, they are now moving now into a, a cost optimization mode. Um, and that cost optimization mode is, look, how do I lean into the cloud? How do I move toward the cloud? But at the same time, I got to hunker down for this thing that just simply isn't going to go away. You know, it's the thing that wouldn't leave. Um, and and it, it, it's, it's going to be a, a, a real challenge. We think we then move into a, the third stage, which is a business resiliency stage. You know, it's here where you've battened down all the hatches and you're, 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 you're focused on getting through a recession. And, you know, believe it or not, we're already four months into this recession in the United States. And a, a, a typical recession lasts 
nine months to 18 months, somewhere in that kind of a range. So we're kind of, you know, getting into the middle innings now of this. We think that the, the fourth stage is a targeted investment stage. Here, that's where the investments you make in the recession period and that lean in that we're seeing now into the cloud, we start to see targeted investments that companies are willing to bet on because they can sort of see the sun coming up on the other side. And then eventually we get to the future, the, 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 the growth phase, the, 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 the emergence of a new enterprise. And that's kind of the next normal. And, you know, had you asked me four months ago, what I would say the new normal would likely, when that new normal would come, I would have said, oh, for sure, um, we'll see that in early 2021. Obviously, this has become a lot more elongated. Um, and like I said, it's going to end with, with a whimper here. And I think that whimper, you know, we're seeing sort of echo booms associated with that whimper all the way now, you know, likely into mid-2021, likely toward the end of 2021, um, depending upon the region of the world. And, and we are behaving, and, and the sentiment is different in every region of the world, very, very clearly. I mean, we can talk about that in a moment, but it is, it is striking how different governments and different societies are dealing with this challenge. Yeah, it is yeah, definitely that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, so, so to recap, you know, you're talking about a crisis phase that maybe we've exited, this business continuity was the focus. Yeah. There's the sl slowdown phase, we focus on ROI, a recessionary phase, where operational resiliency may be the focus area, an investment phase, right. where acceleration is potentially a focus, and then hopefully recovery, where you're leaning into innovation. <clears throat> and you know, from, from my company's point of view, and maybe because you're a SaaS cloud provider, there's a lot of doubling down on innovation. We're seeing some really bullish we're seeing acceleration of digital transformation for a lot of our clients. Certainly, you've talked about positioning yourself for movement and agility and speed, thinking cloud-first mentality. The reason we could pivot 51,000 employees to work from home literally overnight is because we were positioning ourselves for movement and into how we worked. Right. So can you talk to us about all these IDC clients? What are, they, what are they thinking about in terms of their budgets? their investment thesis? Are they doubling down? Are they pulling back? You know, what's your sense? And I know it's so geography it's dependent, so, yeah, yeah, dependent so, size uh, of company it, dependent. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a great point. Now, if you look at a region like Asia Pacific, we've already seen the bottom of, of, of our, our we, we've done monthly IT spending index surveys throughout this thing since this thing started. And we saw the bottom about about a month and a half ago. And we've seen that now start to turn. And we're seeing companies start to say, you know what, uh, we're feeling better about spending and we're feeling better about growth. And, you know, I, th I think, you you know, it's, it's likely common knowledge that China will likely show um, a small increase in GDP this year in 2020, which is unheard of compared to any other any, any, any other region. When you look at other regions of the world, you can see that the United States slope is still going down, but it's, it's, it's becoming less down. And, and uh, Europe is now starting to flatten out. By the way, just as an aside, Europe has done a, fin well, the early indications are, Europe has done a phenomenal job controlling this, 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 this situation. Uh, people, you know, they, we had some real, uh, really tough situations in places like Spain, in places like Italy, and, and they've really, um, They've really taken this on, and, and they've 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 dealt with it in a way that hopefully will serve them very very well in the future. Um, 
the United States is um, a, a place where we don't have uh, a consistent policy around the United States, and that is is we're seeing that challenge right now. Um, so the United States, the IT spending is still moving down. Now you asked a different question, though. You asked us, you know, what is the most sort of important buying criteria for that next purchase? It's interesting. Um, innovation. Uh, companies are focused on innovating. They are focused on innovating on platforms where they can share more information. They can engage developers in a virtual way. That translates to things like the cloud. That translates to things like collaboration technologies. Um, security, privacy, compliance, these are all things that companies are super, super focused on uh, spending right now. But they're also focused on technologies that, uh, in terms of buying criteria, focused on things that drive sticky customer relationships, driving customer satisfaction, driving customer engagement. Um, these are uh, also uh, super, super important. So um, it's, it's, it's very, very uh, interesting to see that when you move over to the actual kinds of technologies that are interested in spending on, what, hot, what, what, what comes up there, you, you see things like uh, security top of the list. You see things like collaboration technology. You see things like cloud. These are the these are the things that you know companies need to make sure that they can engage their employees and that they can engage their customers in this new world. And I think what's been really fascinating is how technology is enabling people to work in new ways and getting people to be productive. I mean. Uh, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'll, you know, I, I, I believe that it is all about transparency. I uh, have never been a, uh, a very, I was never confident in myself as a work and home employee. I always kind of felt like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's be very, very difficult, really, yeah, super, super challenged. Mm. I have to say that I've learned a lot about uh, myself. I've learned a lot about how productive I can be in this environment, how much time I save to be able to focus on expanding and doing more things. Um, it's, it's, it's just incredible. And I am so proud of the, of the team at our company and how productive we've been. And also it's just amazing how engaging we are with all, all kinds of customers. Yeah. We are. Now, I had a conversation uh, with a CEO um, of, a, of a large SaaS company and, and he made a great observation who said, this is the easy part the part where we're all sitting in front of the screen <laughs> and we're all able to connect and you can get Ray, you can get Vala on the screen. That's the, the hard part is going to be when we're now back in a mode where you're walking down the hall, where you're, where you're talking to people, obviously when you're traveling, when you're, when you're doing all those other things, people are camped outside of your space where you work. Um, that's going to be a lot more challenging, but my hope is that with this tech, this collaboration technology will all be a little bit, more sensitive to those work at home employees and those employees that uh, are, are are working in this mode. But, you know, we'll see. You know, it's a great point. Hey, one of the things that you guys keep talking about, which is really important, is this digital first mentality, this digital first approach. How far are we from there? I mean, this is just the beginning, right? Having the virtual mm -hmm. conferences, virtual meetings, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but then as we get to ideation and prototyping and sales and things that were traditionally in your face that were kind of very, very tactile, um, are we there yet? Or what else needs to happen? For oh, no, we had a long, as you know, Ray, we have a long, long way to go. I mean, we've 
believe that sort of the, the real acceleration in creating digital first organizations is, is you know, but pre-COVID, we were looking at that happening in 2022, 2023, 2024. That's been pulled in as a result of COVID. I think you're going to see massive accelerations in things like um, additive manufacturing, in things like uh, in, in, in 3D manufacturing beyond prototyping, um, rethinking of supply chains. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, when you look at the industries that uh, are only reliant on technology, those were already moving relatively quickly. But then when you start breaking down the barriers in industries that are heavily, heavily regulated, those industries are now, I think, ripe for disruption with, with digital. And I'll give you a tangible example of that, which is telemedicine. So in telemedicine, when you think about uh, what an insurer, so what a doctor could say, a doctor would say, hey, look, I'm a doctor. I'd love to treat customer. I'd love to treat patients uh, across any um, uh, 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 you know, ge geographical you know, theater, if you will. But the insurance company might have a very different opinion. You know, you're based in Illinois. Don't you dare talk to that customer in Iowa. <laughs> you know? They're kind of, and that, and that's kind of where regulation and 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 unnatural business practices kind of get in the way. But I think that when you bring the intelligent edge, 5G, and and telemedicine, and a and a pandemic all together, you've got a recipe for a whole new way to treat patients in the future. And I think that that's just one example of how the world, we probably have jumped ahead two years. Um, and I think we're just going to go a whole lot faster going forward. And those emergency certifications work. I know, I know a lot of people in the telehealth industry, and they've been able to go across state lines because it's emergency. But, you know, they go away once the emergency is over. So Exactly. Well, well, but, but, but or, or do they? Or, 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 or do they? The or do they? Or do they? Or do right? Customers simply demand and say, you know what? This is the, you're you're not helping me, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Politician. You're you're not helping me here. Nope. <laughs> when I when I uh, when I watch you present uh, your annual futures, um, you know, technology trend. There's such contextual intelligence in how you develop your thesis. First of all, you have 1,100 analysts debating each other, and then they're going to have to present to you and the leadership team. And yeah. the vetting the vetting process is ridiculously thorough. Uh, but you do you do talk about impact of politics and 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 market shifts and trends. You're the top person at, at at IDC. We have a lot of CEOs that have been on the show and watched the show. What advice do you have to the top, you know, to the CEOs of companies during these uncertain times? Is there is there something you can share, you know, uh, based on your learnings of the last? Four months. Of course, you were radical transparency. You said working from home. You know, as a president of IDC, you yeah, have yeah. to adjust, adjust to it. But what yeah. a great example! What a great role model! You know, you got 1,100 analysts that listen to you and say, "Look, if our president is comfortable working from home, we shouldn't, you know, second guess ourselves. We can add value." What other advice do you have to other CEOs? Yeah. So, I mean, I. I, I participate and in, in, in communicate with a number of CEOs on a regular basis about this, this very thing. Look, I mean, this is about communication and transparency. I made a commitment to our company, which I've kept, which is that every single Friday I would send our, we have, we have over 2000 employees. I would send every person a, a, a note of, of my observations of the week, what we need to be focused wow. on, what's wow. happening. Um, uh, you know, what are the trends in the business? Um, and I have lived up to that every single week uh, where I, I and I just 
wrote, just just wrote it today. Um, and and the feedback that I get is unbelievable. Just saying yeah. thank you for being there. Thank you for being so. Um, uh, 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 available. Um, I'll get personal notes all weekend long from people who just, well, some people will say, look, I live alone. Um, you've given me permission to close the laptop. You've given me permission to, to have some, I mean, I mean, so a couple things, communication, um, empathy, uh, look, people, um, this, this thing is really dangerous, right? I mean, people will not stop working until they fall over. And, and you got to give people permission to step back, take a walk, take some time, spend, be present with your loved ones, whatever they are, whether that's a person, a pet, uh, children, whatever it is, be, be present in, in, and, and, and engage. Um, there's, it's, it's also really, really important that, um, everyone has to stay connected. Um, and I, and I mean the employees, I mean the employees and then also with our customers. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a crude example, but the, the example I've given a lot is that this is not, you know, as far as us and our relationship with the market, the market's had a tremendous blow to the head. And, you know, it's, it's medically not true, but what do they say? They say, don't let that person go to sleep, you know, keep that person awake. And so what I've said from day, day one is we have to keep engaged with our customers. We have to stay engaged. And, you know, we have written the more re our, our, our research is up double digit in terms of what we produce during this um, Wow. During this pandemic, um, we have engaged our customers. We have um, I, actually, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, I have seen innovation, a pivot before my very eyes, the invention of this idea of virtual events, uh, this idea of, of engaging virtual events all around the world. Um, we are doing hundreds of events around the world with our analysts, with our, uh, all with our customers, with, with IT buyers. And it's so rewarding to see us pivot in that direction and make tremendous amounts of success. And, and so my job is to highlight those things, to, to get people connected and to keep people engaged. Um, and I think the more you can do that, you know, from here and from here is really, really important. This is not the time to hide. Hiding is the worst thing that you could possibly do, uh, in, in my opinion. And, and you know, look, um, I'm, I'm coming up to the, end, to the end of year two. Uh, as 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 being president, and uh, I have to say, when I took the job, didn't see the global pandemic coming. <laughs> now, if you but did, I, I, definitely, you... I definitely don't feel like the same leader that I was going into this. Going into this, pandemic. Awesome. No. it's been an incredible we have one been an incredible of the industries. We have one of the industry's legend, Crawford Del Pratt. You can follow him. He is the president at IDC. Follow him on Twitter at C-R-A-W. This is his third appearance on the show. You really need to come back more. Um, thanks for being here and thanks for being part of yeah, our amazing. Disrupt TV alumni. Absolutely. So. You guys are the best. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Crawford. Take care, uh, guys. Thank Stay you. safe. Uh, it's, why is it, discussions with Crawford feel like, like two minutes? <laughs> He's, he's got so much he packs into the time flies. Okay, talk about a brilliant person. Uh, it's our privilege to have Francis Fry, Harvard professor and author of Unleashed, the Unapolog un Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. Francis is a professor at Harvard Business School. She recently served at Uber's first senior vice president of leadership and strategy. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Francis's TED Talk, Ray, listen to this, has uh, over 4 million views. <laughs> We've been doing disruptive for four years trying to get to 4 million views. She does one talk. 
That's not fair. She's done. Uh, Francis says, uh, was the, <laughs> Francis was described in a recent Los Angeles Times article as the go-to woman for companies like Uber and WeWork looking to improve their image. Uh, she has headlined in all the major publications, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Financial Times, USA Today, Washington Post, CNN, you name it. Major media, she's headlined and appeared on those shows. Uh, we welcome you uh, to Disrupt TV. Uh, thank you for being here, Francis. Oh, it's such a privilege. And wow, do I like the energy of the two of you combined. Wow. <laughs> it's all right. We feed off We feed off our guests. We feed off our guests, and it's awesome. And you know, some of the work that you've been doing really around this concept of leadership and trust are, is really important, right? Um, and you started out with some very gnarly problems, right? I mean, going into a company like Uber and trying to figure out you know, what the crux of the issue there was uh, in terms of the toxic culture and and you started out with trust of all things. Um, why was that? And how did you figure out that was the initial root cause? Yeah, so that's a, it's a great question. And what, what we found is that um, many of the relationships were breaking down. And so the, the obvious um, problem presenting it is that regulators didn't trust us. Drivers didn't trust us. Like lots of different stakeholders had wary interactions with us. We even found that some of the employees didn't trust us. And so it really became to trust is like a, a, a vague term almost. I mean, we all said, oh, it's a lack of trust, but it was when we figured out the operational manifestation of it and that you could really figure out, is it authenticity, logic, or empathy that's getting in the way? We could really make progress quickly by getting there. Yeah, that's no, that's amazing. a big deal. And we're definitely seeing that as, as a underpinning for a lot of executive relationships. Yeah, no, it's it. Um, and what's amazing to us is that if you have a really careful diagnosis and if you treat trust like you treat every supply chain issue, like if you treat it like any other operational problem, you know, it's, a, it's, in the, it's in the boundary of leadership. But when we treat leadership problems and get down to their operational detail, I find we can quick them just as quickly. Sometimes we can fix them even more quickly um, because people are really hungry for a better version. Yeah, in your book, you argue that uh, the most important thing you do as a leader is to, uh, is to build others up. Uh, you talk about leadership isn't about you. <laughs> it took me, I think, the first 10 years of managers to figure that out. And uh, it's about how effective you are uh, at empowering other people. And, and the word empowerment, can you just explain to us, uh, you know, in, in simple terms, how, how do you establish a philosophy of empowerment leadership? Yeah, so, and I think it goes back to, there's a beautiful quote by Toni Morrison, which is when you earn that power that you, and you gain that power that you so richly deserve, your first act should be to turn around and try to empower other people. And we really mean it in that spirit, that our job is to make others better. We've learned that if you, you can first do it as a result of your presence and then have it last into your absence, but it's to take our power and leverage it and accelerate it and make it contagious to others. Yeah, I mean, I, I, somebody asked me, funny. what's a good, somebody, yeah, sorry. Somebody asked me, what's a good culture in a company? And I, I said, you know, it's what people do when the managers leave the room. Like, do you have, do you make the right decisions for the right reasons yeah. at the right time in the absence of authority? Yeah. 
if, if you have that, then you've got a beautiful culture. And I think, and, and, and actually, I think there's two things that can drive the behavior when the manager's not in the room. It's, and we try to make this argument in the book, it's strategy and culture. So if you think about like, how am I guided when, when you're not here? It's my understanding of the strategy and everywhere where strategy is silent, it's my understanding of the culture. And so it's, it's I'm not saying one is more important than the other. I am saying they're both needed so that we have for how we behave when the manager's not there. Here's an, yeah, I'll just I mean, say an interesting thing awesome. is that every board of directors I've ever interacted with, very, very deeply involved with strategy. Not yet, but I think becoming just as deeply involved in culture. And I think that's when we know we'll have gotten there because they're both equally important and a board's obligation, I think, mm. is to address both of them. Yeah, and we've weighted totally. the boards very, very totally. differently over the years to be heavy on the strategy and light on the operations. And I think we've paid uh, in it in terms of some, both on the performance side of the equation as well as the culture. And you talk a lot about this empowerment leadership that's really important. Um, and, and that's kind of the crux of a lot of this is like the empowerment leadership. How do you drive that? Right? Yeah. How do you encourage that? Yeah, and so, and, and I think, so, uh, and, and the, our book is really a how-to manual, like it's, so the first thing to do mm -hmm. is to create a, a sense of trust. And the reason we need to do that is that uh, we believe human progress is accelerated when we trust one another. <clears throat> if you trust me, I've earned it. It's my obligation to get you to trust me. Similarly, it's your obligation to get me to trust you. So the accountability of trust, I think it's important. But if we, and you know, when you have trust, you get the benefit of the doubt. You don't have to relitigate things. Like everything works faster, smoother, and you can aim higher. So the first thing is to establish a foundation of trust and we show exactly how to do it. The second part is how can I set one other person up for success? How can I empower one other person? And we've learned some counterintuitive things about how to do that. And then the third part is, okay, I can do it for one person at a time. Now, how can I do it for a whole team, a whole region, a whole organization? Quite honestly, we think it goes to a whole nation. Um, but how can I set up more and more varied people at once? And the big uh, unlock here is that if we can take advantage of more variation, we will thump everyone else, to use a quite technical term. <laughs> Yeah, we got a great quote from one of our friends. One of our great friends is saying, "Trust is quickly lost and slowly gained." So um, I actually, um, yeah. I think you can quickly gain it. Uh, so you can quickly gain I, it. Mm. Yeah. So I think when we used to think about trust as an amorphous thing and we didn't understand its component parts, it would take a long time. Mm. But now that we know its component parts, we could say, "Ah, that was an empathy. Uh, empathy uh, got in your yeah, way. Right, 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 Logic right. got in your way." Oh, and for you, it was the substance of the logic. For you, you have great logic, but it was the communication of it. We now understand its component parts so well, we can actually gain trust quite quickly. Wow, this is super powerful. You know, it's, uh, I, I mentioned this in the previous uh, segment with Crawford Del Prent that you, know, you, you have a, a, a pandemic, uh, no, nothing that any of us on the show have experienced in our lifetime. Uh, you have an economic uh, crisis, you have uh, you know, you have you still have climate concerns. You have a race crisis that's, you know, frankly, what we've witnessed in the last several months on in, on, in video is 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 uh, it's, it's, it's uh, incredibly troubling. And and then you have lack of leadership. So there is a deficit of trust given the combination of things that we're all facing. 
including being at home for four months and 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 uh, in in this in this new norm that none of us thought about in January of this year. So so when we talk about culture in this now even more digital, even more hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy, your culture is now your brand. And your brand value is now defined even more in terms of diversity and inclusion and equality. What advice do you give to companies like Uber or any company that you've advised in terms of the importance of culture, given the fact that, that we're now more connected than perhaps ever before and people are determining the discretionary spend and whether they're going to do business with your company, not just based on your product, but your culture. So the first thing I'd say is that I think everything you just said is great news. I agree with all of it. And I think it's wonderful that um, culture is not just in the nooks and crannies of our organization, but it's also spilling over to our customers. Like one of my favorite things that happened at Uber was when the riders got fed up with how we were treating drivers. I just love that. It's just like that. It's really awesome because it's going to bring out the best version of all of us. And so I really like the communal aspect of it. And the advice I give to people is like, we do a quick culture diagnostic to understand whether or not you have a culture problem. But if you, if you have one and you call that, we then talk about how to overcome it. And here's how we do it. It's it, we can describe it simply. It doesn't mean you can execute it simply, but we can describe it, which is, First, uncover the devastating data. That is, what is the evidence that you have a cultural problem? And I, the reason I want to see the evidence is because I want to know when to celebrate when the evidence is when, when the gaps that are there, and that's usually it is, it's a gap from where we want to be and where we are, or perhaps between one group's thriving and another. I want to know what it is now so we can know how to celebrate at the end. So that's the first thing is collect the devastating data. The second part is super counterintuitive, which is, Collect the devastating data and don't share it broadly yet. Now, like everyone has this quest of we want to be more transparent. I do too, except when I know that if I give you data without any way to process it, it takes Mm. about two years for an organization to digest the data. So we say collect the data and then very quickly do lots of pilots so that you can show some progress. So we say pilot the optimistic way forward. Come up with a pilot that shows that you can make progress on it and then give the data and the pilot to people. Because if you just give the data, oh my gosh, people are gonna say, did you collect it like this? We need more data. How did you ask the question? Oh, and if you do it for an academic institution, like two years is the minimum. (laughs) So I think just wait four weeks before (laughs) releasing the data and pilot an optimistic way forward, just a small pilot, unleash that into the community, and then let the community blow your mind by how much collective progress they can make. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, my, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. sorry. Okay, my okay, wife is, uh, has worked at Central Administration in Harvard for 20 years, so context and optimism and all of that is very important. Yeah. <laughs> very important. No, we're getting some great comments here. People are asking, you know, a, a good understanding of the word of trust. You know, consumers are making choices based on their brand values. I mean, these things I, are all popping I love up. It. And, and, you know, and this really gets into this concept around authenticity. And in the book, right, you say that everyone has a wobble in authenticity, that little point where they're just unsure about, is that authentic enough? Is that too authentic? Oh, right, coming so into great. that regard. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, well. so, you know, there's, 
we have advice for the people that are like not at all authentic, like how to become, how to first become authentic. And then we have a different bit of advice for people who are like totally authentic and we'd like them to trim it back a little bit. Tone it just a little <laughs> just bit. A little bit. Like you just don't need all of it. Trim it and leave a little bit at home. So the message to them is, wow, that's a lot. But the message, I don't want people on the other end to hear that advice because for these folks, um, if mm. if you're not bringing your authenticity and you're just like us, it's not a huge cost. But if you represent a different perspective, a different learning, a different understanding of the customer, and you're not bringing your full self, wow, we're going to pay a very big price for that. But here's the tricky thing we learned about authenticity. I can, I, you know, like, I'm going to vow to be more authentic. That's great. But you know what really helps? Mm -hmm if you set the conditions for my authenticity to flourish. So each of us has an obligation, I believe, to set the conditions that makes it super welcome for other people's authenticity to flourish. And when we do that, holy cow. That's awesome. I, I, the two words, Ray, I heard that I haven't heard or used in a long time, thump and wobble. So this is two good <laughs> words. I'm going to add it to my, I love that, wobble. Oh, yeah. And thump, I love thump. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always say smart people, use, smart people use simple language. I love it. Uh, okay, so, so I'm, I'm a first-gen immigrant refugee. And one of the reasons I joined my, com my current company is I felt a sense of belonging and mattering uh, based on my interaction with the company. I just thought they were inclusive and, and there was diversity of, of everything, gender, age, thought. Uh, I saw people that looked like me, you know, it just felt good. So how do you advise companies to create this and or, or, or perhaps reinforce their organization's commitment to inclusion and, and diversity and equality? What, what are some ways uh, so that companies can about, really think about that more deeply? Yeah, so how you just- A little just bit on the WeWork it, experience as well, so. Yeah, I'll do that. So, and how you just phrase it is exactly the right way to do it, which is inclusion and diversity. I find when we say diversity and inclusion, we sometimes get misleading because I can bring in diversity, but if I'm not inclusive, it's not going to make progress. But if uh, I learn, wow. right, if I learn how to be inclusive, I promise you the diversity will flourish. So I almost yeah, wish yeah, yeah. the first person who had said it with the imprinting said I and D. I also love how Tony Prophet at your organization does it when he, he brings in a beautiful, more extended version of it. Yeah. Um, but if we if you think about when we went to WeWork to do it, and I was involved in WeWork at a very optimistic time. And so it was when they were doing very mm. well. That's when I got brought in. I was there also sure. through the failed IPO. But when I was brought in, here's a company that's doing very well, and they I mean, really well. And they were like, you know what? We don't like the demographic tendencies of our senior team. That is, the whole organization, for example, is 50% women. But we're not 50% women at the top. And it can't be that we then have only the best people. Like, we probably have the best people of the demographics that we're going after. But we would like help in thinking about how to attract and retain awesome women. And their yeah. goal was to have 50%. So this is a company that was had with, like really modest success. And so we piloted that in one area of the organization and got past 50%. And it was because they were so open-minded about if I don't know how to recruit women, what here's and I haven't been successful at recruiting executive women, I should probably stop doing everything I've been doing to recruit people. 
So even though I said, I'm recruiting people, I was really just recruiting men. I didn't say that's what I was doing, but that's all that was coming out of the outcome. So then when we said, well, how would we recruit women? And the big unlock there is, how do you recruit people that you don't already know? And when you recruit people you don't already know, you open up a whole new world. And so we worked with them to help them do it, but now they can do it. We worked with WeWork. We worked with them so they can do it. <laughs> now they do it in our absence and they can do it just as well as we could have helped them in the beginning. Um, so I, I, wow. I found that part to be, you know, the audacity of WeWork, the audacity of Uber. I'm really drawn to the audacity. I understand human failings and mm. I know, I like I know how to make, and how to help companies make tremendous progress. But I have to tell you, I loved the audacity that they were going after um, in that. And they showed that it was possible. And it takes, like, no meaningful change takes more than a year in my mind. I might be exaggerating, but hardly at all. If you're going to do something meaningful, you get one year. Wobble, thump, and audacity all at once. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you crushed it. It feels like we talked for a minute. When we talk about remarkable language, just the notion of the order of the words, like I never thought about that, that if you actually believe in inclusiveness, the other part probably yes. will take care of itself. Like it's, yes. uh, it's just the order, like, ah, yeah, wow, what a, what a aha moment. It's, yeah. uh, My mind is wobbling important. right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's been thumped. Um, so wait, yeah, real quick, real, before we end, what's one thing any leader can do to start applying the principles in Unleash Tomorrow? Like if they had to choose one, where should they start with? Um, Read your book. Read your book. <laughs> uh, I'll say when you walk into a room, um, don't be self-distracted, be other distracted. You are the least interesting person when you walk in the room as a leader. Very, very powerful. Wow. All right. We're here with Francis Frey, Harvard professor wow. and author of Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. So follow her at Harvard HBS. Uh, and of course, catch the book on uh, Harvard Business Press, uh, awesome. Harvard Business Review Publishing. I got to get it right. <laughs> so, um, anyway, yeah, they were my publisher. So hey, thanks for being on the show. Uh, and of course, happy Friday. Uh, same to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow, wow, wow. That was awesome. Ray, ah, come on now. That was ridiculously good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is why we always have you as our finishing guest because, you know, uh, we just want you to bring it home after like two extraordinary. Because we're, we're usually speechless by this point in time. So, so. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, well, I'm like scribbling notes here. During her whole thing, I go, oh, yeah. God, that's great. <laughs> oh, my God. She was, she was so good. She was so good. Uh, okay, a proper introductions. Uh, we have uh, Heather Clancy, editorial director of Green Biz Group. Heather is an award-winning journalist specializing in transformative technology and innovation. As uh, editor, uh, editorial director of Green Biz, Heather covers the role of technology in uh, enabling uh, clean energy, sustainable business strategy, and low-carbon economy. In addition to Greenbees, Heather's articles have appeared, again, all over the place. Fortune, New Yorker, entrepreneur, everywhere. <laughs> I wish the New Yorker, but I'll, I'll work on that. <laughs> uh, she's the co-author of, oh, I'm sorry, New York Times. New York Times. I have New York Times. I read New Yorker. Uh, Heather is the co-author of uh, the Amazon bestseller, 
for entrepreneurs, niche down how to become legendary by being different. Legendary. Heather is a great <laughs> follow on Twitter. Legendary. Great follow on Twitter at Green Tech Lady. And this is your 16th appearance on Disrupt TV. Welcome back, Heather. Thank you for <laughs> and having me. What did you think of the last two segments? Oh, it's, uh, it's uh, well, yeah, I mean, because <laughs> because actually, I mean, you you read my title. Um, I'm I'm a journalist, but I'm also in the middle of this this incredible transformation at my own company. We're an events company, so yeah, <laughs> we're we're pivoting as well. We're in the middle of just, and it's it's so inspiring and terrifying and overwhelming, and and yeah, I mean, it's it's um, I I, I shouldn't say interesting because I know that has bad connotations, but um, you know, it is quite inspiring and, and terrifying simultaneously. Well, hey, there's a yeah. lot going on, sure. right? As mm -hmm. we think about digital events and how people are being brought together and, and that has completely shifted, but the issues are still the same, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. recently put something out there that was very important, right? We're talking about e-waste, right? Electronic waste, electronic waste recycling, there's that Morgan <clears throat> Stanley report. You know, let's go a little deeper into that mm -hmm. story uh, mm -hmm. to understand what's going on because like we all know it's a great idea, but what's going on? So, I mean, as we know, the, the pandemic has created a a very difficult situation for recycling. Um, and, and, and we'll speak, I'll speak specifically about the electronics recycling. We might get into plastics in a moment, but um, I got into this particular line of journalism uh, 12 years ago now, and I was focusing on this issue, electronic waste at that time. And frankly, the, it hasn't really changed at all that much. The biggest um, mm. problem um, I think, in, in if you think if you if you want to take one simple thing, what, what's holding it back? It's the collection. It's it's how do you get this stuff back to a place where it can be processed um, and not just recycled, but refurbished? If you think about it, and like this is what gets me excited about the possibilities right now. The digital divide has never been more glaringly obvious than than right now. I mean, if you think about all of the families that are trying to homeschool, remote school, whatever, however you want to uh, say it, their kids. Um, one of the biggest issues that I know, all my, my teacher friends, is, is that many of these families have one thing. And you have parents that are trying to work and you have kids that are trying to learn and everyone's trying to submit their homework or their assignments or whatever on one computer. Um, and there's, there's definitely very profound... Uh, inequities across the United States and, and I'm sure in other countries, I don't, I'm not expert, but if you, if you bring it back to this, think of all those devices now that, that we could be putting into the hands of people. So there's a tremendous opportunity to take those devices, get them back into the hands of people that really need them. Um, and there are, I, I, I actually, I, I think it was the IDC numbers. I noticed that the IDC PC numbers were up in this quarter, like way more mm. than last year. And you can see that that yeah. we need to get this technology out there. So if you take it full circle, the biggest issue right now is that, you know, with the exception of some very large companies that have taken a leadership position on this, Apple, Samsung, Dell, um, that are collecting or are making it easier to collect the, these uh, systems, uh, there's not that much going on. I mean, it's really hard to get it back. So. Wow. There you go. Yeah, you, you wrote that, uh, you know, it's, first of all, for context for our audience, 50 million tons of electronic and uh, electrical waste produced annually. And that, that is more than all of commercial airliners have manufactured ever. <laughs> so that's <laughs> now, a, just a, a mind, mind numbing. 
You know what the kind uh, of good I, I, thing about that statistic, though, is, Vala, just one thing on that. It is about the same as 12 years ago, but you think about it, we are using a lot more than 12 years ago. So I don't know. Okay, so I mean, some, like, been some it could be more. I mean, it could actually be more than that. That's kind of a good news thing, right? Um, and I, you know, I spoke this. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, I spoke with this, uh, that if you, uh, there's a really cool company in Los Angeles called Homeboy Industries, right? And they, one of their big business models is for the very business, various business units. They go out into the community and they're, they, they do work first development programs, particularly with formerly incarcerated individuals. And they had an electronics mm-hmm. recycling component that really focused on that. And, and, and Hewlett Packard works with them to, to handle some of their programs. There's, and I'm sure there's others that I'm not mentioning that'll get mad at me now. But um, the woman mm-hmm. who was running that company is now um, in an organization on the East Coast called Retriever. And what they're starting to do, their, their, their first market is Philadelphia. They're going to houses and picking up this stuff. Um, not just electronics, they're also going to work on clothing, which is a whole nother um, area to discuss. But, but I, think, I think with people thinking about, um, uh, you know, not just recycling this stuff, but repairing it and making it and extending the life of it, um, getting it. And so that's all. So, so these conversations are much more um, active right now than they have been in a long time. And that, that's good. That's a really good thing. You know, Doug Henschen yeah, is saying Governor Murphy start. of your home state has uh, just announced huge investment in closing the digital divide. Awesome. So, uh, we'll Thank there. you, Doug. <laughs> yeah. In, in, your, in, the, in the piece that you wrote, there was a reference to the survey outcome. I think it was 10,000 people that were surveyed, but mm. more than half uh, said they recycled old electronic devices. Uh, that was up 24% from two years ago. 80% of the respondents reported that they had repaired a, a device. Mm-hmm. And then this one that surprised me, 70% had bought or planned to buy refurbished ones. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know I repaired my Dell laptop last time I had an issue with it. And I've been, this is an iPhone 7, so I've been with this guy. And my company keeps sending me notes, you're ready for a new laptop. You're ready for a new phone. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm all set. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good with what I have. But uh, anything surprising to you in terms of repairing and buying refurbished and, and, and no, recycling? I mean, I, or is I, this what you expected? Well, it's what I mean to think about it. And my, and my husband's a great example of this. He hates new stuff. Like he gets used to using <laughs> one thing and he doesn't want the other thing. He wants an, a, a, a new version of that old thing. So he'll go, he'll be the person that gets yeah. that kind of device. But also, I mean, back to this, this thing with kids and family and your, and, and parents, you know, you don't necessarily need the latest, greatest uh, right. laptop to have the homework done. You, you need a good, solid working machine. Why not? So I think I think it didn't say what they were buying them for that survey, but I don't. It doesn't. It didn't surprise me at all. I think people are. I, I, and, and the economic situation is such that people are like, "Hey, I need sure, to do this. Sure. I need to be. I need to, to to be budget conscious about this. I need to do it in the best way for me." Yeah, yeah you know, sense. there's been some great recycling programs where they do scrub the drives, keep everything there, mm-hmm. and get someone a brand new drive mm-hmm. you know, from a data protection perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're right, some of those leading manufacturers have been helping out to drive that, but there needs to be a lot more work there. You know, yeah. but another issue that's popping up that we keep seeing, like this is post-pandemic, right? I mean, single-use plastics are up. Masks are everywhere. Right? Yeah. We're creating a lot more waste in these sorts mm-hmm. of products than we were before. Um, what have you guys been seeing there? Like, what have you guys been researching around that? 
because you know it's anything from like the gels to like the single packets to mm -hmm. all the new plastic bags that are coming back again after those were being banned i mean it, it's crazy so i mean it feels like we've gone the other direction or has it improved that net net because we're driving less i think it was react i do think it's it's it has been reactionary um and for people are, were frightened right? People were afraid and, and, and they were misinformed. And you know how bad the data has been on everything. And you never know who's telling you the truth and you can't get good number. I mean, it's just been, it's just been ridiculous, um, the lack of federal leadership on this. But the, California is now putting their ban back in place. Did you see that? I'll, I'll go back to a, a new, another thing, I, did. <laughs> I think, a couple I of weeks did. ago. Um, and I, I do think that it, it's right for people to be concerned about safety and, and um, sanitation and so forth. But I do feel, uh, and actually another great example, Loop, um, I've talked about them before. They're the, the, the division of TerraCycle that does the reusable containers and so forth. They just launched in the UK. So they didn't post that launch went off. It did. It was postponed a couple of months because of the situation, just generally speaking. I think that was more of a logistics and operational concern though, than a, than a like, oh my gosh, will people buy into reusable containers? I do. I think the, you know, I think the horse is out of the barn or whatever, whatever you want to say with it. I do think, yes, people reacted. Um, and we, and absolutely the waste issue is just, is just ridiculous. I, it disgusts me. I mean, I just cannot understand why people would throw this stuff on the ground. Um, and I think, yeah. but I do think I see a lot of reusable masks coming into place now that you can wash and yes. we're going to, they're going to be with us a long time. I think there's going to, there's some very, very creative companies that have popped up that are um, making or, you know, taking things that were meant for another purpose and re and reselling them and making them um, available to, to consumers is rather, rather than a particular community of, of medical professionals or something. Um, I do think that the conversations around safety are super important um, and maybe they weren't happening enough before. I, I will say that I like that about it, but um, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be forever. I think, I think we're going to keep moving forward on this one. Sure. Sure. And you know, there's a, there's a, you know, uh, there has to be a greater sense of accountability and, and trust uh, today more so than ever. And, and even more so when brands engage with you as an award-winning journalist, because they now know that you actually go back and, <laughs> and assess whether they met their promises. So AMD in 2014 said that they were going to move, improve their, uh, their uh, energy efficiency of their mobile processors, <laughs> and they committed to a 25-time improvement. 2014, six years later, you go and check, and they're actually at 32 times. 31.7. Who's, who's tracking this stuff? Like, who's actually tracking this stuff? Okay, so to, awesome. to, to be clear here, congrats, congrats. I am not that good about this thing. I, I, I often You're let awesome. You're No, 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 no. They, they, I, this is, remember that transparency we were talking about a little while ago? Um, and, yeah. and you don't want to be too transparent, but you want to be transparent. Well, they have been very transparent about this. Um, and for every year since they made that goal, have reported on it and, and given progress, given themselves a scorecard. And they, uh, yeah. they, they, you know, they, they highlighted to me that they had done this, but I was like, oh my God, you're right. You have done this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, but it just made me think, you know, I'm, we deserve to know. We deserve to know how people did, even if they didn't make it, because the companies that are trying to be better need to know where they're going to run into potential hiccups, because if they don't, they're going to make the same mistakes 
and it'll take just longer. And if everyone shares what they're, where they're making mistakes, we could kind of all learn together and, and start pushing this yeah. forward more there's quickly. There's a lot of shared, there's a lot of shared yeah. out there. That yeah. I mean, and what I really loved about this goal was that it took everyone, right? They made it an engineering kind of challenge. They got all the engineers yeah. stoked up to do it and, and, and we're, we're saying, try this and try this. And, you know, it became a point of innovation. So, um, you know, that was, I, I was like, quite I like, I like long-term thinking and planning. I like publicly announcing your long-term plan and then measuring along the way. It's just to me, it's a, it's a, it should be considered a best practice in terms of how you build trust. We talked about last segment, how you build trust with stakeholders. I think it's just a good, it's a very good example. And kudos for you to covering that and bringing awareness to other companies who want to better understand what best practice looks like in terms of accountability. Mm. So, hey, mm. one last question coming from the audience. And I thought that was a great one uh -oh. here uh, from you know, Kabilin, uh, really talking about how to break geographical and especially political barriers to ensure recycling of electronics to ensure a green world for all. And then what we're going to do is we're going to make sure we send off our producer properly uh, since it is okay. our show. Okay. So, yeah, so the... what do you think? How do we get to that problem? <laughs> Wow, that's a big one. Um, it's how a do deep we break it's geographical <laughs> and especially political breaker, uh, barriers? Because we rather. used to just ship that off to someone else and they take well, it. Well, we're not right? going like to Whatever ship country that off. was willing to do that. And yeah. we're not doing that right now. Hey, here's the thing. I mean, these could be really good jobs, right? I mean, I went to mm. the, the Homeboy recycling thing. I mean, I think we have been thinking about recycling as this thing over on the side. We have not thought about just the whole municipal recycling infrastructure as an opportunity. If we could put people to work handling this stuff, if we could bring the chemical recycling advances that are the happening. Rare earth, we could, the rare earths, the rare earths too. I mean, there is so much opportunity here. If you think about like, like you know, I, I hate to keep bringing them up, but I will. Apple, like, is, that's what they're doing amazing things with aluminum. So I feel like um, it's a skills thing. I think we have not, we've always looked at this as someone else's problem. It's our problem. Yeah. And if we invested at the state, I mean, I know there's various states that, uh, you know, if you think about producer responsibility, I think there's about half of them have laws that require it. Half don't. We'll get on. Hey guys, what, what are you waiting for? Get on it. Um, and think of it as a job opportunity. Think of it as even with the automation that's going to happen here, there is just so much opportunity. So I don't know. I don't have a specific, okay. uh, I'm not a policy expert, but I think no, we're no, this is way. great. I mean, if you want, yeah, no, let's take different perspectives to get there. We're here with Heather Clancy, editorial director of Green Biz Group. And of course, you can follow her on Twitter. Most interesting articles at Green Tech Lady and also check her out at greenbiz.com. Uh, but also, thank you. You know, thank you for being here at your 16th appearance. Yeah. So, Bye, so, Aubrey. Thank you for being here. <laughs> so okay, we're going to bring in and you know, we're going to bring in our uh, producer, uh, bring her back uh, onto the show. Uh, she's popped herself in. And yeah, we want to send you off. And uh, yeah. I want to thank you for starting with us on the show and, of course, ending on a super amazing note. I mean, we're doing as many as 100 and, I don't know, was it 10,000 views on that one or two? I mean, just getting to 600 guests, like all scheduled, yeah. produced, everything. So, Aubrey, I want to thank you uh, for the amazing work. Uh, more importantly, getting a show launched from scratch to where it is today. I can only imagine where we were four years, five years ago. Four mm -hmm. years ago. I mean, you joined us five years ago. So uh, it's been an amazing ride. Vala, anything on your end? So, uh, this show wouldn't exist without you. Just point blank. Um, you know, uh, you create an environment where Ray and I just show up, 
Um, I know personally, it's not, you know, um, you, you mature to a point where you didn't need my input, you didn't need raise, you knew the right guests, you know the right mix, you knew the right topic, you knew how to engage with them gracefully. We have some of the most accomplished men and women around the world that have been on our show, inventors of technology, inventors of businesses, Fortune 100 CXOs, founders of unicorn businesses, best-selling authors, four-star generals, I, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, Emmy Award winners like Kari Anderson. Um, and you did that on your own. Uh, you left the entire logistical production, even the shape of the narrative, because you worked with all of our guests to make sure that we cover their books and the questions and the stories that they want to share, not what Ray and I want to share, really, because they're the experts of their stories. And you did that with grace, with dignity, with accountability, and uh, you made it super easy for us because both Ray and I have our day job. And without an amazing producer, I can tell you, I couldn't do this. So thank you for doing 99.9% .9 of the heavy lifting. And then just allowing for Ray and I to show up for an hour, talk and engage with amazing people. And I just want people to know without you, this show wouldn't exist. That's just fact. Wow. Thank, thank you, you so I much, Aubrey. I was thinking back, you know, four and a half years ago when Ray came to me, he's like, do you want to start a podcast or a show? I'm like, I've never done one. Sure. <laughs> and then what, maybe three or four weeks later, we kicked off the first episode with Lee Johnson. And then we are almost 100, well, almost 200 episodes now. So it's been a long journey to learn how to do this properly. And I'm glad it's successful in providing, you know, great advice and feedback and lots of lessons learned over the last four and a half years. So I thank you guys for letting me join the journey. And I'm uh, sadly hey, right now. <laughs> it's the best part of the it's the best part of the week for Ray and I. I speak for Ray because we keep saying that out loud. Uh, and uh, so you helped create something that's our favorite part of the week and uh, wish you the best of luck. And uh, I hope you watch the show. <laughs> She's going to play some guests. She'll play some yeah, guests on our yeah. show. I think we might give her some producer privilege or some yeah. privilege there. We'll you're, see. You'll, you'll, always, you'll always be a founding member of Disrupt TV, always. So that, that footprint that you left behind will be there forever. So, um, yeah, thank you. On behalf of our guests yeah, and everyone. Oh, On behalf you. of the guests, Disrupt TV, uh, Constellation Research, everyone who's been watching, thank you so much. So really, really thankful of you. Thanks, everyone. All right. We are closing out. We are on episode 199. Can you believe that? Yeah. 199 is coming. It's actually not the right count. Vala will keep reminding us. We're probably on episode 210, given all the special shows from yeah. Davos or, you know, Sales yeah, Machine yeah. and some other things. Well, on the road, right, you know, we've right. never special editions. But right. officially, uh, episode 199, who do we have? We got some great people on this one. Well, what we can say is next week is our 199th Friday episode. So we've had 199 Friday episodes. We've had probably a dozen special shows, but we wanted to just focus on our, you know, three guests, regular Friday episodes. For, for episode 199, we have Miguel Camino, Executive Vice President, Enterprise Partnerships, and Head of Global Cities at MasterCard. He's got a big job, and he's got lots of responsibilities. Karen Mangia, Vice President of Customer and Market Insights in Salesforce, one of the smartest people I know, one of the best storytellers. She's got a book coming out in August. She did the book, started it in June. It's going to be launched, I think, first week in August. Record time for a book. We'll talk about that. 
And of course, Jonathan Reichenthal, who, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Reichenthal, uh, Ray and I have known him for years. He's the author of Smart Cities for Dummies, and we're going to talk about simplifying the concepts and principles of what it means to build future cities. So he's a great he's a former CIO thinker of the city of Palo Alto. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I talk about being a CIO of Palo Alto. Talk about <laughs> but everyone in the city thinks they know more than you. <laughs> so anyway, that's 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 episode one ninety nine. And we look forward to uh having you uh having you join us uh, next Friday. Ray, your closing remarks. You know, hey, it's been a milestone. Uh, we're getting to 200. I think this is amazing. I really thank everybody for listening here, um, whether you're watching live on the tapings Friday, 11 a.m., 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, whether you're on Apple Podcasts listening to us, of course, if you're on YouTube, Periscope, and, of course, any other place like SoundCloud, please check us out, and thank you for being with us every Friday and giving us your time. Follow you're in. You're good. Thanks, everyone. See you next Friday. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, we're good. All See right. you next Friday. Thanks. See you next Friday. <laughs>